If you will, we'll read in the book of Colossians this morning. Our text this morning is going to be chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, but I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 20 this morning, and then we will focus our attention simply on verses 15 through 17. So if you will, follow along with me in your Bibles. This is the inerrant word of the living God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So just to give you a general idea of where we've been, just a reminder and to catch everybody up and get everybody onto the same page, in Verses 1 through 14, these would have been Paul's words of introduction to the letter. This is a letter, and Paul introduces it as a letter. And he introduces it in the way we would normally introduce a letter. Hi, this is so-and-so, and I'm writing to another group of people. Paul says, from Paul and Timothy to the church at Colossae. These are words of introduction. And then he ends up uh, giving a thanksgiving. We saw this a couple weeks ago. And he thanks God um, for the Colossian church. Remember, Paul has never met the Colossians. All right, This is a church that he did not plant. He, to my knowledge, doesn't know any of them. Um, and they do not know him. But he is writing to them because a man by the name of Epaphras, who I believe probably planted the church or is at least the pastor of the church, has communicated with Paul and has desired and and has some questions because some false teachers have come into Colossae. And so Paul is now writing to them. And not only does he greet them, but he gives thanks to God for them. He thanks God, that they have a faith in Jesus Christ, that they love the saints and that they have a hope for eternal life in heaven. And so Paul is thankful for for those things. And then last week, if you were with us, Paul uh, concludes the introductory remarks by praying for the Colossian church. And he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that they would walk in a manner worthy in a a manner that is pleasing to God. And so that those are the introductory remarks. And now Paul is getting into the body of the letter. So verse 15 begins the body of the letter. So let me give you a um, a little bit of a preview as to to where we're going to go today and then we'll look into detail at these few verses. We should note how Paul concluded the introductory remarks. He concluded them in verses 13 and 14. He says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now what Paul is going to do is he is going to describe the Son. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now Paul is going to describe that beloved son. And it is perhaps one of the most magnificent descriptions of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. Maybe Philippians chapter 2 would parallel this where uh, we, we see a, a uh, a praise of who Christ is. We see him uh, in, in his pre-existence in Philippians. Today we will see him in his preeminence. Paul is going to describe the beloved son, like I said, perhaps one of the most profound and detailed and important descriptions of the person of Jesus Christ. I am glad you are here today. This is a critical passage of text not just in Colossians, in the entirety of Scripture, these verses stand out. In fact, verses 15 through 20 are so important. I'm only going to get through a couple of them today. So Paul is going to present Christ as preeminent. What I mean by that is Christ is superior in status, that he is first in rank. And this is to counter the false teachers who have come into Colossae, who have stated that Jesus is prominent, but not preeminent. Prominent, but not preeminent. And Paul is going to push back and say, oh, you've missed the boat entirely. Verses 15 through 20, Um, most biblical scholars consider this a hymn, perhaps a poem. Um, And with at least two major sections, and I won't get into all of the the details here, but I'm going to, to divide this hymn, this poem, into two major sections Verses 15 through 17 we'll deal with today, and verses 18 through 20 we will deal with next week. Today we will see Christ as preeminent in creation. Next week, all things going as planned, we will look at Christ as preeminent in the new creation. So today, Christ preeminent in creation. Next week, Christ preeminent in the new creation. So that's the general idea. I think verse 17 is our our central line or the central line of the hymn, uh, but we can discuss that on Wednesday nights to see if you can agree with me or not. So anyways, does that make sense? That's where we're going. There's my introductory remarks. That's where we've been. That's where we're going. We're handling three verses a day, verses 15, 16, and 17. And it is an amazing passage of text. So let's begin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Paul is describing the, the son in whose kingdom we have been transferred. You have been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let me describe the beloved son to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This idea of image, um, it is the Greek word icon. You're probably familiar, or anybody who uses a computer is probably familiar with an icon. An icon is, um, but in, in the days that Paul wrote, an icon might be uh, an exact image, perhaps a mirror image, that type of thing. Uh, you look in the mirror and you say, well, there I am, or a picture or a painting. This portrays um, the subject. 
But I would say that the way Paul is using the word icon here is less about what God looks like. In other words, let's just say, I, I wasn't around at the time, but let's just say Jesus was five foot eight, 130 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. We are not saying that God is five foot eight. 130 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. We are not saying that. We're not saying that Jesus has the physical appearances of God. But He does display what God is like. That God's character is on full display in the person of Jesus Christ. We see this um, clearly in John 1.18 where John writes, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Speaking of Jesus, Christ, Jesus, has made the invisible God known. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We'll be, we'll be referring frequently to Hebrews chapter 1, but in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So He is the exact imprint of God. The very essence of God. This would have been a counterpunch to the Gnostics, to the false teachers that Paul is refuting. These false teachers, we know them as Gnostics. I won't go go into detail. Um, At least I don't think so. You never know. Into detail about Gnostics at this point. We'll, we'll deal with, with this false group as we go through the book. But they taught that Jesus was a step on the ladder to gain access to God. In other words, there is the pure God and He is pure. And He is good. And there is no unrighteousness in Him. He is utterly pure spirit. And so therefore, he could not have created a material world which is evil. And so out of him came these emanations, or we'll just say these lesser gods. That will be the easiest way for us to... From him emanated these lesser divine beings, and finally you got one who was mm, so much lesser. There's good grammar. So much less that he could create the material world. The false teachers were teaching that Jesus is one of those emanations, one of those lesser deities, and he is a, one of the rungs that, on the ladder to God. If you wanted to gain access to the, the one true God, you had to go up this ladder, and Jesus was one of those rungs. Paul is refuting that. Paul is saying, no, he is the exact essence. He is the, the same essence of God. No one can see God in all of His glory. We see this in uh, vividly in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. And, and we see, if you look upon me, you will die. And throughout Scripture, we see that God is veiled. He's always veiled. Isaiah 6 would be a great... Uh, place to see the veiling of Almighty God. Uh, Isaiah sees the temple and, and uh, 
and the temple is filled with smoke. And these angelic beings calling out about God, but God is veiled in smoke. In other words, I cannot look on God in His purity. Smoke needs to veil His image, so to look on Him without that veil, I would die. In fact, at the end, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I'm a dead man. Moses only saw God's passing glory. What was his prayer? Show me your glory. God said, yeah, you can't handle that. I'll show you my passing glory, the tail end of my glory. That, and even that radiated Moses so that he shone. Jesus is God veiled in human flesh. At the transfiguration, there's a great account that veil was temporarily removed and the disciples caught a glimpse of Jesus in his divine glory. Jesus says this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul's point here is that Jesus makes the invisible visible. The invisible God is visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we'll get there one day. He says, for in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this is Paul. He begins, so the, the son whose kingdom you have been transferred into is the very image of, of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. Jesus again says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So I guess my question, or my, my statement on this is, if you want to know, if you want to know who God is and what He is like, look to Christ. Perhaps a good way to start is if you're not certain, you're going, well, I wonder what God is like. Perhaps read the four Gospels and look at Christ and you will see an exact representation of God the Father. So, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Then he is also the firstborn of all creation. The way I want to deal with this idea of firstborn of all creation is the first thing I want to do is I want to clear the table. I'm going to get rid of all of the mess, all of the dirty dishes so that we can put the truth down. Because this verse has been manipulated throughout history, throughout church history, to say what it doesn't say. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to say what it doesn't say. We're going to talk about what it doesn't say. Then we're going to talk about what it does say. So what it doesn't say, it does not say that Jesus is the first of God's creation or the first thing that God created. It says that he is the firstborn of all creation, but it does not say he is the first created thing. This was a heresy that was popularized by a man by the name of Arius in the 4th century. In fact, they, they call it a big church council. The first church council in 325 in the town of Nicaea, in the city of Nicaea, and they rejected 
Arius' view that Jesus is the first created thing. He is the highest of God's creation. As I said, this is a heresy that was popularized in the, first, in the fourth century. Um, it never went away. They dismissed the Council of Nicaea and Arius' Arius's teaching still continued on and it continues on to this day. We see it mostly today. We see it in a lot of different ways, but we see it mostly in, in the teachings of the Jehovah Witnesses. They would teach that Jesus is the first created thing of God. He is the highest of God's creation and they would use this verse to prove their point, as did Arius. They would say he is a being created by God, but not God, or not the full God, a lesser God. This would have been similar to what the false teachers in Colossae were advocating that Jesus is one of many spiritual forces that have emanated from God. Perhaps he is even the greatest of the emanations that um, have come from God. They would say Jesus is prominent, but he is not preeminent. He is a being created by God, but he is not the one true God. But that's not what Paul says at all. So let's just take that and remove it off the table. Because Paul doesn't say that at all. He says that he is the firstborn of all creation. He does not say that he is the first created thing. He does not say that he is first created. He says he is firstborn. There is a Greek word for first created. Paul doesn't use it. Neither did any of the early church fathers, neither did anybody in the orthodox, in, in, in orthodoxy early on ever use that Greek term to describe God. It exists. It was available to Paul, but he does not use first created. He uses firstborn. And firstborn can have the meaning, certainly, of the first child to be birthed. But we would say, well, Jesus wasn't the first child to be born. Cain was. No, Adam wasn't. Adam wasn't born. Jesus was certainly the firstborn of Mary, but he is not the firstborn of creation. Paul says he's the firstborn of creation. I'm sorry, of all creation. Like I said, there is a Greek word that means first created. Paul doesn't use it. This idea of firstborn carries the idea of rank or position. Firstborn carries the idea of rank or position. Exodus chapter 4.22 God says, Israel is my firstborn. And in Psalm chapter 89, your notes may say verse 23, ignore that and go to 27. And I'm going to read this and I want you to, to, uh, to, to note how firstborn is used here. And I'm going to start with verse 20. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Who's he talking about here? David, thank you. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall be strengthened with him, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him, I will crush his foes before him, I will strike down those who hate him, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted, I will set my hand 
I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of heaven. I will make who my firstborn? David. How many know that David was not the firstborn? He had a lot of older brothers. He was the youngest of all of the brothers. Firstborn here has nothing to do with order of birth. It has everything to do with priority. I will make him my firstborn. I will give him a place of distinction, a place of um, a place of highest rank, a place of highest position. And so Paul is saying Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He has first rank. He has priority. He has preeminence. So what do we get from this first line of the hymn? That Jesus, the one whose, whose kingdom we have been placed into, he, that one, Jesus, is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. He has made God visible. Oh, and by the way, he is preeminent. He has first rank in all creation. That's who he is. We could stop there. Paul doesn't. Let me draw a few, just one or two contemporary applications to help us in this. The false teachers in Colossae taught that Jesus is prominent, not preeminent. That is not an unpopular view today. Many people today will be happy be happy to share with you that, yeah, we love Jesus. He's awesome. And he may be one of the most important, prominent historical figures that has ever lived. Today, Jesus may be portrayed um, as prominent. You see, it is not controversial at all to side with a Jesus who is an ally to refugees, who is compassionate to the sick, able and willing to mend broken people. He encountered and befriended the outcasts and fed hungry people. That Jesus is not unpopular. Just about everybody today, everybody through history, except maybe a few exceptions, are all on board with that Jesus. The one who is an ally to the to the destitute and the one who is a friend and the one who feeds the poor and the one who is compassionate to the one who is outcast. Very few people have a problem with that Jesus. And when framed in this manner, Jesus is perhaps one of the most prominent of religious people. He is a man above all men. But this is not a complete picture of the Jesus who provoked murderous anger in the hearts of his accuser. I'm not denying what I just stated. Those are elements of, the per- of Jesus who lived. That's just not a complete picture. The fact that he fed hungry people or healed the sick was not the reason people said, crucify him. It was his preeminence, his claim that his words were the very words of God. If you've been here very long, you've heard this 
me say this many times, but I'll say it again. Just one place you can go to see his preeminence is read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And there the preeminence of Christ is on full display. And we see it on full display where Jesus quotes the Bible, the Old Testament. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. God said, thou shalt not murder. And then Jesus said, but I say to you, wow. Jesus has just made a claim of preeminence that the word of God, let me tell you what I say. And I've said this often as I've stood up here. If I were to ever say to you something like that, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, yeah, it's time for you to remove me from this job. The word of God says you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. Jesus claims to be the author, the preeminent one who speaks the very words of God. Jesus, the preeminent one, has authority to forgive sins. And he, to the response to his forgiveness of forgiving sins was this Only God can forgive sins. And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus forgives sins. He is the preeminent one. His claim to be the God who would judge the living and the dead, standing before the Sanhedrin prior to his crucifixion, they said, then are you the Christ? And he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with glory and honor, and he will judge the the living and the dead, or the wicked and the righteous. A quote from Daniel. And they said, we've heard enough! Crucify him, he has just made himself out to be God. You see, the prominent Jesus is not a problem. The preeminent Jesus is a problem for many today. Few have a problem with a Jesus who meets our temporal needs. Very few, however, will tolerate the Jesus who claims to be God in the flesh and the one having preeminence over all things. In other words, I will allow Jesus into my life as long as, and he can come and walk beside me and hang out with me as often as possible, but as soon as he makes a demand on my life to bow before him and to submit to his will, I will not. As soon as he wants to be Lord of my life, no, he can be my friend. And he can heal me when I'm sick, and he can be a friend to the outcast. But if he makes a single demand on my life, oh no. Jesus is prominent, but not preeminent. And Paul is saying, Paul makes it clear who Jesus is in this first line of the hymn. Well, we've got through one line. Let's keep going. This is why I didn't do all the way through verse 20. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So verse 15 informs us that he is supreme over all creation. Verse 16 tells us why he is supreme over all creation. 
So he is supreme overall. Let me give you an indication as to why. What is it that makes him supreme? And that the why of his supremacy is described to us by three, three phrases. In him, through him, and for him. You will note that I am using the word in him. Many of your translations, including mine, says by him. I'm going to use the word in him. I'll, t- I'll be happy to share with you all of the ugly details as to why, but the Greek word en simply, the majority of the time we translate it, we would translate it in. And I will join with many people who are much more, have a much firmer grasp of the Greek language than I do. I am a novice. But I will join with those who are much more learned than I in translating this in him. And the idea within him is that the eternal ideas of creation reside in Christ. In other words, the plans were drawn up in his mind. Creation is his idea. Some people have put this and have described it as this idea of in him, through him, and for him as an architect, a contractor, and the goal. The architect has the idea of a fabulous dwelling, a house, a building, a community. It's his idea. Jesus, in him, is the architect. Creation is his idea. He envisioned it. That all of the eternal ideas were in him. All things. All things. And by the way, all things includes all things. So that'll probably be the most profound thing I say all day. All things includes all things, which is the extent of his creation. How far does his, the, his idea of creation, his plans for creation, his vision of creation extend? It's all things. Including, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The list here that Paul gives us, all things were created in heaven and on earth. This would just be a poetic way or a hymnotic, I don't know, how do I say a hymn sort of way? Uh, You musicians know what I'm talking about. A lyrical sort of way of saying everything. From heaven to earth, everything belongs. Everything is in Christ. The extent of his creation is all things. Heaven and earth is just a poetic way of indicating that every molecule of the universe is his idea. Everything is his idea. Church. And then it goes on and talks about visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. These words, especially thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, is used by Paul frequently to refer to the angelic realm. So again, remember what the the false teachers were teaching. They are teaching that there is this unseen spiritual world and you need to access them to 
gain access to the one pure God. And Paul is saying, yeah, Jesus is, Jesus designed them. He's not subject to them. He thought of them. Their existence is due to him. Church, there is an invisible world of which we know little or nothing. All of that was his idea. And it can be natural. I mean, when Paul wrote this, I don't think he understood virology or like subatomic particles. They existed when Paul wrote this. He just had no concept of them. They were a reality. So Paul's like saying, just because I don't know anything about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Ignorance of such realities do, do not change the fact that Jesus is Lord of the material, too small for the human eye. He is Lord of the unseen natural world and Jesus is Lord of the unseen supernatural world. The spiritual world is a servant of Christ. We do not pray to angels or ancestors who have preceded us. The greatest saints who have ever lived bow in humble praise before Jesus. We do not bow to them, for the one who created them welcomes us into his presence. I guess the illustration would be, why would we appeal to the butler of the house when we are intimate terms with the architect builder of the house? So while the false teachers in Colossae appeal to lesser deities, Paul assures his readers that Jesus is preeminent. One of the things I find interesting is how Paul does not degrade the spiritual forces promoted by the false teachers. He simply presents Christ as so so far more glorious and beautiful that everything else is unappealing. So instead of talking down, oh, those things are stupid, that's a dumb idea, he comes along and he presents Christ. So glorious, so beautiful that, well, I don't want to have anything to do with that because I got Christ over here. Paul's appeal is not that Jesus is like us, nor that other ideas are foolish, but his, his, he is making Christ so appealing that all else fails. Uh, I forgot the exact date, but in the early uh, 20th century, there was a World Fair in Chicago, and there was a uh, uh, discussion on some ecumenical services and, and people from all over the world, so there were Hindu and Buddhist and Shinto and Taoists and uh, atheist and Christian and Jewish and Muslim and all were, were going to be coming and the, the idea was, well, and Christians had the idea, well, what, what are we going to do? Do we join them? What should we do? D.L. Moody decided that he was going to set up his own exhibit. I think that it was an exhibit. People said, what are you going to do? Are you going to just sh- show how... Um, how false these other ideas are. He says, no, I'm going to make Christ so glorious, so amazing, so ultimate, so preeminent that nobody wants to have anything to do with anything else. By the way, it worked. There was great response to Moody's making much of Christ. I don't need to say how false these things are. What I need to do is make Christ great. This is what Paul is doing. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him. 
Not only is he the architect, that Christ is also the builder. He is the agent of creation. He not only envisions creation, not only was it his idea, but he is the one who built it. It was created through him. John 1.3, the passage we, we probably know. In the beginning, speaking of Christ, all things were made through him. And without him, not anything made that was that was made. Let me read that again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 10. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. Just in case you're not sure of what the reference is there, verse 8. But of the Son, this is what God the Father says, of the Son. You, Lord, so first of all, God calls Jesus Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Jesus is the builder, the creator of everything. If Jesus were a created being, then he could not have created everything. Right? Because what could he have not created? Himself. So if we are saying that Jesus is the first created thing, we cannot say he created everything. But Paul is saying he all things, which in the Greek means all things, have been come through him. And by the way, not just Paul, but John and the author of Hebrews. 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, or for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So Jesus is not only, the creation is not only his idea, but he brings his plans into fruition. Oh, and by the way, Paul's last point, he is... Not only the architect and builder, but he is the goal of all things. All things have been built for a purpose. Everything is, exists to display his glory. The architect dreams, envisions a, a home or a building, and then it gets built, and everybody who visits that says, Oh, what amazing architecture. What incredible craftsmanship. Certainly a genius is behind this building. All of creation displays the glory of God. It is built for a purpose. And that purpose is to display the beauty and the splendor and the glory of God. Creation, we see, finds its fulfillment in Him. We were not only created by Him, but for Him. Note that. We were not only created by Him, but we were created for Him. So to seek fulfillment anywhere else will be disappointing. You can go back and listen to my messages in Ecclesiastes for that. 
You could say that we have been created for Christ. We were made for each other. Maybe that's a sappy way of putting it. And I know we attempt many substitutes. We attempt to substitute that relationship with hobbies or vocations or relationships. But as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Why? Because we were not only made by you, but we were made for you. Church, I want you to know you were made for Christ. What an amazing truth that is. You were made not only by, by Christ, but for him. Then verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things. I think this is a reference to both time and rank. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Before existence, I existed. But not only does Jesus build everything, and not only does everything display his splendor and glory, but Jesus is the sustainer of all things. In other words, Jesus maintains what he created. Jesus maintains what he built and Jesus maintains those things that reflect his glory. Once again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul puts it this way. In him, all things hold together. Oh, a little Greek geek for you. The verb tense is perfect. It's a perfect verb tense, which just simply means that it is referring to something, the action occurred in the past, but it continues to have present reality all the way into the future. So, he, in the past, probably a creation, began to sustain things. And he still sustains things now. He is the sustainer of all things. He has not taken his hand off of what he has made. He made you and he has not taken his hand off of you. Providence informs us that God sustains the world he created and he directs it to his appointed purpose. Jesus is the sovereign over the laws of the universe. He established them and by the way he is free to override them. Contrary to those who would deny miracles, stating that the laws of nature cannot be abrogated, yeah, but you go to the lawmaker, the one who created all things. Jesus is the one who envisioned the universal laws. Jesus is the one who put them in the place, and Jesus can override them at his discretion. The idea here is that the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who wept at the death of his friend, the one who washed his disciples' feet, the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is the one who holds all things together. So church, do you feel like everything's falling apart? Do you feel like you're falling apart? I want to encourage you. Remember, 
that the preeminent Christ is holding it all together. The preeminent Christ is holding you together. Rest in him. Find your source in him. I'll conclude here. We could go on, but I'll conclude here. (laughs) The purpose today for me is to present to you Jesus as above all things. Not just prominent, but preeminent. Not just the best, but above and over all. Jesus is more than a sympathetic ear to the downtrodden. He is that, but he is more. He is more than a fellow victim of injustice or a wise teacher or an admirable mentor or a tragic martyr. See, if that's all he is, there are many others who fit that description. Paul and the entirety of Scripture will not permit such limitations. Jesus is the one in whom all things find their goal. You and I were created by him, and we were created for him. And it is only reasonable and rational to glorify him in all we do. So church, I would say maybe we should spend a few moments or maybe as you go home today, think about, does my life glorify Christ in all that I do? Let me lean upon him and allow him to have, to display his splendor in all that I do. And if you've fallen short, understand the gospel. The gospel is that I will go to Christ and say, I have not honored you in everything I do. And Christ, the preeminent one, will be certain to forgive you of your sins. He paid for them on Calvary. All of us probably say, well, I've fallen short in glorifying Christ in everything. But we don't want to leave you with law, glorify Christ. We want to leave you with grace. So church, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our God, we give you praise and we give you thanks this day.